Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Ghost Ship. Institutional Racism and the Church of England. This is a reading from the introduction by the author, A.D.A. France Williams. Part 1. It is the night. White superiority, British aristocracy. Take aim, blame BAME. Your colour blind, your colour binds. When black is lack stretched on the rack, seen through your eyes, black lives are lies. Fluency in your language doesn't mean it's our mother tongue. The system is unequal, bring the sequel. Are you brave enough to get the job done? I remember attending the church youth group bonfire night trip as a teenager. I was there with two older cousins, toffee apple in one hand and sparkler in the other. As our sparklers died, we retreated a little way from the fire. We were cold and huddled together, equipped with hats, scarves and gloves. The evening wore on and it was time to board the minibus to return to church. The white youth leader shouted out our names as he couldn't find us. We were mere feet away from him. We stepped forward into the light of the fire and he laughingly said, Because you're black and it's dark, you lot are invisible. Unless you keep smiling. We all laughed and boarded the bus. This was a very familiar comment to me. Unless you smile, we cannot see you. There are many black church members hidden in the shadows of their congregations, awaiting someone who knows them by name to call them into visibility and invite them into a sense of calling and vocation. I have been smiling for a very long time, seeking to remain visible, loved and liked. My face is aching and the smiles are turning into tears. The Church of England is being encouraged to take inclusion seriously. In the last year, at a church I led in suburbia, we had a visit from head office to our church council meeting. These visits can feel a little like an inspection. We had documents stacked high on tables, inventories, open registers and details of works done on and in the building, which we refer to as the fabric. As the only person of a visible minority background within the group, the senior figure asked the group, How are we doing on diversity in this church? A colleague of mine, without skipping a beat, pointed at me and responded, He answers that. Everyone laughed, and I was plunged into darkness, smiling for grim life. I too laughed my laugh a little louder than the others, attempting to mask the discomfort the playful repost had prompted. Something of my organic fabric felt torn at that moment. The diversion caused by the laughter meant we did not think about the question now buried beneath the mirth. We clambered back onto more settled questions and responses, 
questions we had answered before, variations on established themes. The question remains unanswered. I am not the answer, and I dare propose a better question. How are we doing on equality in this church? By this church, I mean the white historic church. Diversity can assume the need for a simple horizontal relationship to be created, whereas equality questions the vertical dimensions of the engagement. Who of the pair meeting or the people group represented has society imbued with the highest status in any given transaction? Who has society demoted and muted? This is not simply black and white. This is internalised. I went to the island of Nevis in the West Indies as a placement during my training for ministry. I was sponsored by a mission agency, then called the United Society, formerly the United Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, or USPG for short. This is an old mission agency that began as SPG and had a charter that prized white lives over black during the transatlantic slave trade. It was top-down mission, it was hierarchical, and blacks were very much at the bottom. It was compromised by short-term political power and economic concerns that made it complicit in the slave trade. They have since travelled a long way in their thinking and undergirding philosophy. However, some of the white superiority of their founding father still awaits exorcism and laying to rest. I travelled to Nevis with a white man, also sponsored by the same mission agency, who was on the adjacent island of St Kitts for the same month's duration. Towards the end of the month, he and I met up to compare notes. We had had very different experiences. He shared the good treatment he had received everywhere. He had found it difficult to get to know what was going on because wherever he went, he became the centre of attention. The programme he went to observe would immediately be tailored around him. He went to schools and was applauded and looked up to. He went to churches and found ready and receptive congregations. His presence alone would command respect and the black congregations expected to learn from him. When it was my turn to share, I offered how many people that I met were incredulous of my calling and suspicious of my credentials. The short dreads I sported caused some cultural dissonance. On a couple of occasions, I was laughed at when I spoke about my journey towards ordination. So there among my own people, it was harder for them to accept my ministry as on an equal footing to that of my white colleague. He and I were living out the centuries-old roles of master and slave. He was cocooned and celebrated. I was a puzzle and denigrated. James Baldwin expresses the process of objectification I felt and the coronation my friend experienced as. I thought of white men arriving for the first time in an African village, strangers there as I am a stranger here. And I tried to imagine the astounded populace touching their hair, marvelling at the colour of their skin. But there is a great difference between being the first white man to be seen by Africans and being the first black man to be seen by whites. 
the white man takes the astonishment as tribute, for he arrives to conquer and to convert the natives, whose inferiority in relation to himself is not even to be questioned. Whereas I, without a thought of conquest, find myself among a people whose culture controls me, has even, in a sense, created me. People who have cast me more in anguish and rage than they will ever know, who yet do not even know of my existence. There are allusions to a slave past here, the old scripts one has to actively work against to be truly liberated. The slave owner acted as God to the slave. A white slave master's words are recorded. Even after slavery had been abolished, did I not tell him? What business is he to think or to judge or to set up his conscience after I have commanded him? The slave owner demands obedience of body and soul. Emotional labour. Emotional labour is a suppression of feelings between worker and customer or client. It is a neutral or friendly mask one wears in spite of the discomfort, displeasure or even distress one may feel during an interaction. It is the deployment of mental resources to keep smiling when one is internally suffering. Those of us in relationships may be able to appreciate this trope in the domestic sphere. In a helpful essay on emotional labour and race, the authors consider an in-depth study of the world of aviation and the institution of law. They describe the regular micro-racisms that people face, like a spoken distrust of the black pilot's competence, for instance, or a comment about where a person is from, or when they're going back home. These mini-assaults on one's personhood are death by a thousand paper cuts. The organisations have a supposed neutral liberalism or an on-paper positive view of race and equality, but the felt experience and emotional burden of those black and minority ethnic members is significant. Part of the inbuilt worldview of these organisations is that black people are often angry and therefore irrational. When I described to a white theologian friend the idea of my book, his first response was, don't be angry. I told him that anger is an emotion that is sanctioned. To his credit, he replied, in that case, be really angry then. The subjects of these emotional labour studies time and time again said they regularly chose to let offhand comments go for fear of being labelled passionate or angry. The deeper fear is that resistance to the felt oppressive structure could leave them alienated or excluded. Part 2. The Time Machine at St Paul's Cathedral On Sunday, 4th of October 2015, I was invited as part of the St Paul's Cathedral Black History Month, to be the preacher at Evensong. This being my first time preaching in such a grand setting, I went in a few days earlier in civvies and was slightly intimidated by the marching of the vergers and their team crisscrossing about their tasks with efficiency and speed. I plucked up courage to stand in the way of one such juggernaut, 
who I was delighted to discover was flesh and blood, and willing to accommodate my request. I wanted to stand in the pulpit and get a feel for such a platform, and try a few of the revolving lines from my sermon. They removed the red cord barrier and escorted me up the staircase. They showed me the button for the microphone, where I could leave my sermon, where my glass of water could go, and so on. And then they left me, marched back down the steps and reapplied the barrier. Luckily, I rarely get vertigo. I was pretty high off the ground and felt a mile away from the congregation. As I familiarised myself, I happened to look up to the roof or canopy above the pulpit. My sense of intimidation grew, and my sense of self shrank with what I read above me. There was a beautiful inscription which said, For God and for Empire. For some, that would no doubt be a source of pride, a high honour. To me, it was code for supremacy and shame. A reminder of my slave ancestors being brutalised and traumatised by the buccaneering adventure seekers who deposited enslaved Africans in the Caribbean to make sugar in order to satisfy the European sweet tooth, among other motives. I took a sharp intake of breath, then felt suddenly destabilised. I was caught in a type of tractor beam, pulling me back into an unfinished past. I long for the day when the Empire's ongoing effects no longer advantage one group while disenfranchising others. To love oneself as a black person in the UK is an act of resistance to the pressures and powers that are actively bearing down to disassemble whatever sense of identity one can muster. I have love for the black West Indian culture into which I was born and bred. This was expressed in Chapeltown in Leeds, West Yorkshire, with aunts and uncles aplenty of all shapes and sizes and countless cousins. I did not grow up using the phrasing first, second, third cousin once or twice removed, which individualises. No, I learnt that you picked a relevant ancestor and linked as many people as you could to them. Other cultures may have an equivalent practice. I would be with a relative in the area and meet a stranger, and a sophisticated linking ritual would occur. Oh, she's your cousin, they would say. Oh, she used to call Henry's sister, auntie's father, uncle. I struggled to keep up with the long list of apparent random linkages going back through the generations, until the common ancestor was located, and therefore she and I were now cousins. And that was it. Less of a family tree and more of a family sea. We were all in it together. We traped from house to house, enjoying mountains of food, sometimes in dark valleys of despair lit up with laughter and patois. We were constrained, disciplined by conservative forms of Christian religion. There was a longing to, among the first generation elders, a longing for back home, the islands, the sun, sea, surf and sarsaparilla. There were second-generation black positive activists based in places like the Mandela Centre, seeking to teach black history and black pride. I had no idea Mandela was even a person.
I was within a Christian tradition which didn't watch the news unless it involved Israel, Russia or new technology which all added up to Armageddon. The younger generation used words of affirmation to one another. Our urban dictionary contained terms like safe, which we would say as we fist bumped, or respect, or easy. On reflection, we felt far from safe. There was not much which was easy. And on the whole, we did not feel respect from the wider society that we encountered. So we were establishing safety, respect and ease in our microclimate as much as we were able. Today's youth, so I'm told, use the word sick a lot. The Chapeltown Community Centre would put on holiday clubs called play schemes for when school was out for the summer. We children would be excited to meet up with friends and go on the organised day trips and we got to watch films on the coach. These were the days before regulation and apparently youth and children's worker training because for some reason the adults our parents trusted us with thought us kids could appreciate R-rated movies. The coach had a fat TV monitor with VHS video built in, situated above and behind the driver's seat. The film we watched and was spellbound by was Trading Places. Trading Places for the Uninitiated is about two men, a homeless black man, Billy Ray Valentine, played by Eddie Murphy, and a rich white man, Louis Winthorpe, who is played by Dan Aykroyd. It is about two worlds, the world of the underclass, the black male street hustlers and the white women street workers, street violence, and the world of the upper middle classes, a white world, refined and elite. A place where crimes happened through paper and policy, sweet violence. The setup was based around a bet between two old white brothers, Randolph and Mortimer Duke. They were playing God, like the Wizard of Oz before Toto pulled back the curtain revealing him to be impotent. They owned a large business and controlled the lives of all they surveyed. They disagreed on whether nature or nurture played the biggest role in shaping character, so they engineered a social experiment and made a dollar wager. Unbeknown to the men chosen as their pawns, the Duke brothers decided to temporarily reverse the fortunes of these two men. They would take away the privilege and the prestige that came through access to the best that white society had to offer its members. They planned that for a time, the young, ambitious and arrogant Louis Winthorpe would slum it. It would teach him some manners. Then they would reinstate him. This demonstrates that they had already decided that it was nature. Louis deserved the place and Billy Ray would never fit. Unconsciously, in making it temporary, some part of them knew the black man would never be fit to truly lead. Even if, as happens, he proves he deserves to be there. They have already set his fate and determined his destiny. Even if it goes against their best interests, they do not really want to make more cash. They want to make more clones. The Church of England claims it wants to reverse the decline, build communities across its parishes and build congregations of purpose. However, those in power 
and this is what I mean by variously using the term white, establishment, ruling classes, English elite, and not willing to trade places with those frozen out by the strong security measures that only grant access to a particular type of person. The Church of England does not want strong communities or empowered congregations. It wants clones. It cannot have both. What will happen when the rich white man leaves his castle and the poor black man opens the gate to find staff arriving to call him sir? Poor Louis loses privilege quickly. He winds up in jail, though innocent, and the only person who would take him in is a white prostitute, Ophelia, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. His money is cut off, his private memberships are revoked, and he has to learn to hustle and resist the system that has made him and now broken him. Billy Ray Valentine is inserted into the life Louis has been ejected from. He now works at the firm and has to navigate a very different world. He begins to excel, using instinct and a deep intelligence that propels him forward. He moves up the class ladder but does not lose his class or his hustle. He does not know this is only an experiment. It is only a trial exercise because we all know people are meant to stay where they are predestined to, don't we? Among the many ideas we have about God, there is a dominant strain undergirding a vision of this kind. One example of it flows from the pen of theologian and statesman from the 16th century, John Calvin. He held that a person's place in society was God-granted rather than a function of human effort, advancement or gift. Calvin said that we should honour men who have more than themselves because God has freely bestowed the special gifts of honour upon the elect. Thus the poor must yield to the rich, the common folk to the nobles, the servants to their masters, the unlearned to the educated. This was a handy theory, since John Calvin himself was at the apex of the magisterium of his day. He brought a sombre systemization to Martin Luther's lively Protestant revolution. Arts were out. Executions were in, once he held the reins of power. If you have power and want to hold on to it, it is useful if your beliefs and lived convictions about God and theology match your place in the given society. Back to Minnie-Me swinging his legs, littering the coach with popcorn bits watching this film Trading Places. The two men in the experiment go through a range of trials and eventually meet for the first time as peers. Equality is good, but equity is better. Adjusting the conditions so everyone has a fair shot. When they meet as humans, one has lost his privilege and is now renouncing its trappings and embracing a broader view of who and what matters. And the Billy Ray, who never lost his pride even in suppressed conditions, demonstrates a wisdom parallel to, and in some ways superior to, the tried and tested normative business intelligence. He brings different eyes to the business social order and gives the company an advantage. The combination of Billy Ray Valentine's original thinking with the opportunity to make a proper living catalyzes his sense of what is possible. Part 3. 
If the Church of England learns how to work effectively with its people of colour, the release of life and vitality that will flood through the church into the waiting world will be incredible. Would be incredible because, as Gus John says, for over 30 years the Church of England has had the Duke's brothers approach. Let's give some of our people of colour a taste of white privilege. If they do well, great. It's probably our nurture of them that's led to their success. If they fail, fine. It's their nature that has caused them to fail. In an interview, the Indian Episcopalian priest and justice advocate Winnie Varghese said, So Kelly Brand Douglas, who I'm pleased to say is a friend, someone who I really, really admire, says it this way, You can't be white and be a Christian. It gets everyone's back up. It's a great technique and it's true. What she says is, Whiteness is not a description of skin colour, you know. Whiteness doesn't have a category. It's not a thing. It's not an ethnic identity. It's not a language or food. Whiteness is a tool of racism. Whiteness is a tool of white supremacy. All kinds of whiteness are possible. You know, in the United States, Germans weren't white when they first came. They're white now. Italians weren't white when they first came and have been made white. The Irish were not white when they first arrived. So whiteness is a really flexible category. So flexible that my birth certificate, I'm sitting here next to you about the same skin tone as you, my birth certificate says I'm white. I was born in Dallas, Texas, but I'm not black or Mexican, which are the other categories. So a white woman very honestly wrote white on my birth certificate. Whiteness is a claim to power, a claim to rightness. It is a racialized claim. There is no such thing as being white and being a Christian. You have to resist that identity. When that identity is resisted, these two humans meet to work together effectively to create inclusive, generative, messy and magnificent community. And they also challenge and work to expose and demand changes from the complacent, colluding white hierarchy. What happens when those who have the privileges and power lose it, relinquish it, have it taken away? In the church, one example is Reverend John Collins, 1905 to 1982. He grew up as a darling of the establishment, within a strong Tory family, and had ambitions of being Archbishop of Canterbury. He was a chaplain to his Cambridge College, and by the age of 26, he was priest in ordinary to the king. His favourite hymn was All Things Bright and Beautiful. A rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly, and ordered their estate. But he became friends, with a radical Catholic priest who had been excommunicated, who challenged Collins' understanding of how society was ordered and how it could be reordered. His socialist convictions outgrew the box and became a bridge to a new world and a new version of himself. He started Christian Action, an organisation to support Christians engaging politically and socially, including protests and campaigning. He was in the bosom of the establishment and friends with Clement Attlee, who also being socialist pushed for John to become Canon John of St Paul's Cathedral, believing the bastion of Anglicanism could provide a platform for a new type of Christian action to flourish.
Collins was also one of the founders of CND, along with Bertrand Russell and others. Collins enjoyed the ongoing support of the establishment for his work. However, in 1950, Christian action began to pursue race relations arising from the South African struggle. The then Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher, had been persuaded that black South Africans should find their own solutions inside South Africa and the outside church should not be involved as it might antagonise the Afrikaans government, making it harder for black Christians and churches to operate freely. That modus operandi is still in place today. Leave the black community to solve their own problems without challenging the wider context which perpetuates or exacerbates those problems. So Archbishop Fisher decided protest and public denunciation of apartheid was out. However, John Collins disagreed and used the St Paul's platform for speakers from South Africa. Collins himself preached a sermon directly criticising apartheid. He attacked South Africa's Prime Minister. The papers nearly ran out of ink commenting on the sermon and it contributed to investigations as to the extent to which Britain and South Africa were in partnership. Nelson Mandela and others were risking prison by going into white-only areas. The problem was that when these men were arrested, their families lost a breadwinner. Collins set up a fund to support the families of the boundary-crossing protesters. But Collins had crossed a boundary himself, and the Church of England and those in the House of Lords were not amused by his identification with lawbreakers. Collins had a rule that civil disobedience was legitimate under repressive regimes, but shunned the methods in democratic society. Whatever his personal convictions, he was labelled a troublemaker, and had, in effect, traded places. In a collection of essays on his life, we are told... Lord Halifax politely resigned from Christian action. The Archbishops of Canterbury and Westminster withdrew their representatives. The movement and its creator were no longer respectable. The dream of storming and redeeming the establishment from within had dissolved. John was quite unrepentant and soon a visit to South Africa convinced him even more deeply of the evils of apartheid and the duty of Christian resistance to it. While he was there, he received the same treatment that black people in the UK were receiving. There were posters around Durban which said, Collins, go home. I long for more people like John Collins, people who move from a restrictive conservatism to a justice-based identification with those the church believes should solve their own problems for their own good. Collins listened to the voices of the oppressed and allowed their needs to lead his response. He did not presume to come to this table trusting in his own righteousness. He lost his top spot as a future archbishop. He was strongly influenced by the white future bishop of Stepney, Trevor Huddleston, who was influenced by a group of radical priests and missionaries. Collins did not gain the world on offer, but he did not lose his soul. His soul was knitted with his black South African brothers and sisters. Later he would discover his common cause with the American civil rights struggle. 
and just as he funded black and brown people to occupy white-only spaces, he added his support to Wilfred Wood, who'd go on to become Britain's first black bishop. That was a reading of Ghostship, Institutional Racism and the Church of England. The book is available in bookstores, online and in Kindle format. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.